Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon on 3CR, nowhere else, only on 3CR, to protect and to publicise and to promote public education. Yes, that's right. It's public in access only to every child. It's not public in access just to the wealthy or the people with the right background or belief system. It's also public in purpose and outcome. Private schools can never be public. Don't ever be fooled by their attempt to say that they do a public service. They don't. Public schools should be publicly owned and controlled and they should also be the only ones that are publicly funded. And it's surprising how many people are coming around after about 40 or 50 years of state aid to private schools to the dog's position. Now, the dogs also believe in separation of church and state. And I'm afraid today on our website we have some not very good news to give you from America. Anyone who thinks we have separation of church and state in Australia uh, should think again, and I think they would think again. But in America, to date, the Supreme Court has uh, given a fairly broad interpretation to the First Amendment, the religious uh, clause of the, the religious liberty clause of the uh, American Constitution. But uh, Mr. Trump is in power and he has put a very important person for him on the Supreme Court. And our press release 711, which is on our website at www.adogs.info, that's right, www.adogs.info, is about the American Establishment Clause being compromised because the Supreme Court's ruling, in this case, Trinity Lutheran versus Coma, threatens to obliterate the divide between church and state in America. The American Supreme Court, with the Trump appointment, Neil Gorsuch, pulled down the wall of separation between church and state in the last week. According to the Court's 7-2 ruling in Trinity Lutheran versus Coma, When a state makes a funding program available to the public, it cannot deny funds to a church because of its status as a religious organisation. This sets a very dangerous precedent 
one that betrays the court's historical commitment to true religious freedom and threatens to obliterate the divide between church and state. The facts of the case are simple. Trinity Lutheran owns a learning centre that is used to teach the gospel to children. The learning centre's facilities include a playground that is, in the church's word, part of an education program structured to allow a child to grow spiritually, physically, socially and cognitively. In 2012, the church applied for a grant through Missouri's Scrap the Tire grant program to help pay for playground resurfacing. The state rejected its application, citing a provision of the Missouri Constitution that bars the use of taxpayer money in aid of any church, sect or denomination of religion. Trinity Lutheran sued, alleging a violation of its free exercise rights under the First Amendment. In his opinion for the court, Chief Justice John Roberts held that Missouri had run afoul of the Free Exercise Clause by denying Trinity Lutheran a public benefit solely because of its religious character. According to Roberts, the Missouri rule puts Trinity Lutheran to a choice. It may participate in an otherwise available benefit program or remain a religious institution. This clear infringement on free exercise, he asserted, is odious to our Constitution. Thus, he argued that Trinity Lutheran should be allowed to compete compete in the Scrap the Tire program. To limit his holding, Roberts drew a distinction between religious status and religious use. Missouri, he explained, had discriminated against Trinity Lutheran simply because of what it is, a church, not because it feared the grant money would fund religious exercise itself. He also noted in a footnote that the case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playgrounds resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. This stipulation was meant to strike a tone of compromise, but it doesn't change the fact that, at a minimum, Trinity Lutheran opens the public funding floodgates for houses of worship and religious schools. In any case, Robert's caveat exasperated the Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, both of whom refused to join this key footnote and wrote separately to air their grievances with Robert's opinion. Gorsuch's concurrence is especially telling. The newest justice rejected Robert's distinction between religious status and religious use, writing that the line between the two is constitutionally irrelevant. He also fretted that the court's decision might mistakenly be read to suggest that only playground resurfacing cases or only those with some association with children's safety or health or perhaps some other social good we find sufficiently worthy. Not so, Gorsuch explained. The general principles here do not permit discrimination against religious exercise, whether on the playground or anywhere else. In her forceful dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor 
gave her colleagues a necessary reality check. She was joined by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Unfortunately, the other two voted in favour of Trinity Lutheran. Bayer wrote that a public benefit designed to improve the health and safety of children is akin to ordinary police and fire protection and as such cannot be denied on the basis of faith. But, Sotomayor said, properly understood, this is a case about whether Missouri can decline to fund improvements to the facilities the church uses to practice and spread its religious views. In fact, Sotomayor explained, Missouri must decline to fund these improvements under the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which forbids states from using public funds to underwrite religious exercise. However, Gorsuch and Thomas obviously see Trinity Lutheran as an opportunity to expand the place of religion in public life. And some of Trump's supporters, of course, want this. By the church's own avowed description, Sotomayor wrote, the learning centre's facilities are used to assist the spiritual growth of the children of its members and to spread the church's faith to the children of non-members. The church's playground surface, like a Sunday school's room's walls or the sanctuary's pews, are integrated with and integral to its religious mission. Therefore, funding the learning centre through the scrap tyre program would impermissibly advance religion in violation of the Establishment Clause. Now, Sotomayor's disputes with Roberts is in many ways a factual one because Robert believes that Trinity Lutheran's playground is divorced from its religious mission, although that's not exactly what Trinity, um, uh, Trinity Lutheran said because they said otherwise. Sotomayor argues that it cannot be confined to secular use any more than lumber used to frame the church's walls, glass stained and used to form its windows, or nails used to build its altar. Put differently, the two disagree about why Missouri turned away Trinity Lutheran. Roberts thinks it's because of the church's status as a house of worship. Sotomayor thinks it's because the church would put its grant to religious use. Now, Gorsuch and Thomas didn't care about that debate. They don't think it matters whether taxpayers' money is given to a religious institution for a secular purpose or for a sectarian one. To their minds, the government must always offer public benefits to houses of worship, even if those benefits will directly subsidise religion. This view, if adopted by the court, would effectively demolish the wall of separation between church and state. It calls into question, of course, the Establishment Clause. Because a state offering a weatherizing grant couldn't bar churches from applying for money to improve their stained glass windows. A state offering a construction grant couldn't bar synagogues from applying to build a new mikvah or mosques Mm. from asking for money to repair a minaret. Could a state seeking to fund educational institutions prioritise public schools over parochial ones? Not under Gorsuch and Thomas' theory, since that would constitute discrimination against religious exercise. So it is a very dangerous precedent indeed, and I think that we should be made aware of it because 
our section 116, which was read down and out and is given us by the, the High Court in 1981 and has given us the current situation where billions and billions of taxpayers' dollars, dollars are going into religious exercises. Um, this precedent set in Australia is now being followed in the United States by the new Trump appointment and they've got the numbers. Now, I would like to talk about the Greens and what is happening with the school funding. Lee Rhiannon is a member of the Greens. Uh, she was and has had a long political history in the New South Wales Parliament and now in the Federal Parliament. She represents the Greens of New South Wales. She sees herself as representing the Greens of New South Wales who have a very strong public education voting base and a very strong public education policy. Lee Rhiannon obviously sees herself as a representative of her constituents, the people who vote for her and who support her in the New South Wales Greens. Meanwhile, there are other Greens in the Federal Parliament who see themselves as a voting bloc that can be taken seriously by the major parties and they have got the whiff of power in their nostrils. I'm sorry to say this. I think Di Natale, Hanson Young and others have got the whiff of power in their nostrils. Uh, certainly McKim from Tasmania has got the taste of power in his mouth because he's had it in Tasmania where he did a deal with the Liberals and he was not good for public education in that state. So the people in Canberra, because they've got the whiff of power in their nostrils, are angry because Leary Annan sees herself as answerable to her New South Wales constituents rather than to them. And they are frightened that she will break ranks. Now, the one person who understands that the best way forward for the Greens is, in fact, a very strong public education voting base is Adam Bant. And he realises that he is in his seat in federal government on very largely the public school base, voting base, of North West and Inner Melbourne. And it's a very definite voting base. He understands what Lee Rhiannon could have told them all. And the best thing that has happened to the Greens is that they have not gone in with Gonski 2.0. That is the best thing that could have happened to them because as time goes on, it will become quite obvious that Gonski 2.0 is definitely a naught for public education. It's a no-no for public education. The only good thing about Gonski 2.0 is that Birmingham called the bluff of the Catholic vote. The tragedy is that the Greens and the Labor Party haven't got to the point 
that Mr Birmingham has got to and realised that the aspirational middle class of Australia and the voting base in education is now with the public sector. Now, we'll have a little bit of music. I think that's enough from me at the moment and we'll come back for uh, some more information.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Thank you very much, Jean, for your, as always, illuminating um, media release, which we start the show with pretty much every week when Jean's here. She works them up and she gets them out, which is what we do here on the Dogs. We've got to fight the fight to support government schools. Um, we're not the only ones doing it these days. Um, we'll be hearing from Bernie Shepherd and uh, Chris Connor later on because they've been doing some very interesting research and we often refer to their work here. But I promised last week that I would um, sort of give a broad picture on what's going on with Gonski 2.0 and the Catholic education offices all around the country, both state and federal, and indeed uh, the bosses of the Catholic education office, which are in fact the bishops, the Catholic Church, and I suppose ultimately the Pope. Although George Pell always tells us the Catholic Church isn't this big corporation with the CEO at the top, it's all these different mobs. Um, I suppose that's true until it's not. But I'm not going to get into the theological debate about the hierarchy and structures of the Catholic Church. I'm going to discuss in detail um, the rhetoric that has been used by the Catholic sector, the Catholic education sector in particular, uh, the rhetoric that's been used in defence of the funding that they have been receiving, wish to continue to receive, and as it turns out, will, con- will, will continue to receive for at least the next 12 months. Now, here at the Dogs, uh, we've been fighting the fight to defend government schools for decades. Not one, not two, not three, but over four, even five decades. Because that's how long government schools have needed defending against the ravages, and some would say um, parasitical nature, of the private school system and private school interests. Over that time, there's been various rhetorical devices used, various arguments put um, to us as to why private schools should be subsidised by taxpayers. Now, Jean can tell you more in detail because she was there, but I can tell you that in the 60s, um, the reason why government money was given to private schools was because they were very, very poor, apparently. And um, we were in the middle of the Cold War in the 1960s, and there was a scare because... Australian children weren't learning enough science and technology to win the arms race against the deadly communist menace, both in Southeast Asia and Russia and China. There was a war on between the communists and the free world, and Australia has a duty to fight by producing a large number of science graduates back in the 60s to fight those evil Soviets. Now, the Catholic Church, um, who ran the Catholic school system, said, we don't have enough money to put science labs in our schools. And so, therefore, if you don't give us some money to put science labs in our schools, you're going to lose the Cold War against the evil communists and um, the world will probably end in a giant giant, giant nuclear fireball. It was simpler than that. Mr Menzies got in in 1961 on a couple of votes and they were DLP votes. He only had, like the, the current Prime Minister... A uh, uh, one one person majority. Okay. And he was he was in power and only in power and was only going to stay in power if he could get a few of those lovely Catholic votes. Indeed. So, as Jean's quite rightly pointed out, she's pointed out the political realities of that time. Now, I'm not going to talk about the political realities of any particular time. I'm going to talk about the rhetoric used. I'm talking about the ideas that are being used, the sort of arguments, the the, the combat of ideas. 
And, the, and Jane, I don't at all disagree with you as to the practicalities, the political realities of Australia in the 60s in terms of Catholics and Menzies and votes and governments. But I am going to talk... Too, because they didn't have the money and their, their fees weren't, uh, weren't enough to give them, in fact, what the state schools were doing, which was much better than the private schools. It was known, it was well known, that if you wanted your child to do well, you didn't send them to a private school. Yep, yep. So, again... Political, social realities are not what I want to talk about, although they are relevant, but I want to talk about the ideas. I want to talk about the rhetoric that was used at that time. Um, And so, therefore, money was given because of this idea, because of this rhetoric, because of these arguments that were put forward. Money was given to poor Catholic schools so they could put in some science labs so that Australia could win the Cold War against the evil communists. Fast forward then to the 70s. There is some government money going to state schools for science labs, but not very much. Now, I suppose I have to refer in in passing to the political realities. The political realities were that Whitlam wanted to get into power, and and the only way that he could get into power is to pull the Democratic Labor Party, which was dominated by the Catholic Church, back into the fold with the the Labor Party. In 1969, the the Liberal Party gave direct grants and the uh, Labor Party uh, followed suit. They did, and they expanded the funding. And then there became this beginning, and Jean, you perhaps can correct me here on the rhetoric here, the beginning of the idea of the primacy of choice. The idea that a parent with a child would send their child to a state school or would send their child to a private school based upon religious principles and that the parent should not be punished for having religious principles and so therefore any money that was given for the education of that child should follow the child into the school, private or public. And so we have this idea which then in the 80s got entrenched, and certainly under the um, Hawke and Keating governments, got entrenched as the idea of choice being important. Now, one of the other ideas that relates to what they call the primacy of choice, that is, I have a child, the government is going to pay for the education of that child no matter what, so if I happen to send them to a private school, um, the money should follow the child. Now, at this point... There was this hodgepodge. This, these ideas, these rhetorical principles became entrenched as a political and social reality in Australia. And through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, more and more money went from the, private, from the public school system into the, private, into the private school system because more and more children went from the public school system to the private school system. And so the rhetoric of choice, this idea of choice, then got these attendant ideas put on top of it one of which was the concept of values. Now, the concept of values is that if you send your child to a private school, your child will get better values in their education than if you send them to a state school, be they religious, be they cultural, be they just be the idea that the discipline is better in private schools. So all these ideas, all these, all these reasons why taxpayers' money should go to private schools sort of grew and grew and grew. And so you have this concept of values, you have this concept of choice, and alongside this we, we have the claim that has been levelled at the dogs over the decades that we are sectarian. We don't like Catholics, and so therefore we don't, Catholic, we don't want Catholics to have money. Now, um, I personally reject this, and I know Jean does too, because we have to, in the end, talk about Catholics because the Catholic school system gets billions of dollars, much, much more than any other denomination in Australia. Do Buddhists get money to educate their children in a Buddhistic way in Australia? The answer is yes. Yes, they do. They get millions. 
Do Anglicans? Yes. Do Presbyterians? Yes. Do Methodists? Or what, what, the Uniting Church, I suppose you've got. Yes. Do Hindus? Yes. Do, do Muslims? Yes. Every religion gets money from the government to educate their children in their particular specific tenets and beliefs. Do Jews? Yes. Everyone does. So Australia, in all sorts of ways, is an equal opportunity in terms of religion, equal opportunity money provider. It's an equal opportunity provider of money. The reason why here on the dogs we do spend perhaps a proportionate amount of time talking about the Catholic education system is that they're not, their money isn't measured in, in the millions. The money they get isn't measured in the hundreds of millions. The money they get is measured in the billions. So we have to talk about it because it is such a large amount of money. Very, very limited strings attached and they get these billions in one big bundle and they can distribute it as they please. So in terms of the practicalities, Jenny, I, I just want to bring it back to this idea of the ideas. If you don't want private schools to get money, as the dogs do not wish, then we must be anti-religious, we must be sectarian, we must be hating Catholics or, or Muslims or, or, or whatever it is that, 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 that we're talking about. So if we talk about a Muslim school that is misappropriating money, we are categorised as sectarian and Islamophobic. If we talk about a Catholic school or a Catholic school system or the bishops who control the Catholic school system getting too much money and misappropriating it and saying they shouldn't get it, we have been labelled and continue to be labelled in some circles as sectarian, as, as catholophobic or what, whatever the phrase would be in, in, in modern parlance. So these ideas, let's recap, these ideas of the reasons why private school systems should get money from the government are one... They are poor and they need it. Two, two, they, there is a question of choice. And people should feel free to choose to, be, to send their children to religious schools if, if, or not religious schools. It's, it's, it's all up to them. The question, the ideas of values. I want what is best for my child and what is best for my child is, is related to a religious education and the government should allow me to be free to choose those values and subsidise that choice. And then, of course, the attendant idea that anyone that disagrees with any of these things is a racist and a bigot and sectarian. So these have been the primary driving ideas that have seen the private school system in Australia grow from the 1960s to a few science labs to now, a multi-billion dollar year-on-year vast amount of taxpayers' money being spent on, being spent on private education by the taxpayers of this nation. Now, the reason I do this little recap here and why I'm steering clear of politics and why I'm steering clear of everything to do with the social or indeed political impacts of these ideas is because in the current Gonski debate, in the current debate about school funding, which Birmingham kicked off with this idea of this thing called Gonski 2.0, is that none of these ideas, none of them, were put forward by the Catholic education system when they said, no, you can't take our money away. If you take our money away, the only argument they had left, and it wasn't about values, and the argument wasn't about choice, and the argument wasn't about how poor they are, because they're not. Their argument was, if you take our money away, we will punish you at the ballot box. If you take the Catholic school system's money away, we will make sure Catholics don't vote for you. They are politicising their religion in a very aggressive way. And 
well, there's nothing new about it, Jane, but the, th- but the thing that is new, and I'm going to make this point, the thing that is new is that is the only argument that they've made. None of the driving ideas, none of the driving well, you know, pointers to what has become now in Australia a corrupt education system, none of, those, none of those ideas have been put forward because none of them resonate. In fact, none of them are true. If you want to talk about the values argument or indeed the academic success argument, state schools are out-achieving private schools again and again and again. Now, not all state schools are, that is true, but many state schools, inverted commas, good state schools, most definitely are outperforming in terms of values and academic results. So that argument's just wafted away into the ether. If you want to talk about choice, this concept of choice makes no sense because the public are now aware that the private school system is exempt from the anti-discrimination laws of the country. Yes, you can choose to send your child to a private school, but everyone now knows what that means. That means you are segregating in a semi-apartheid way. You are segregating a child from all other children, so therefore that argument no longer floats within the general public. And if they use the argument, we need the money because we're poor, it has been shown again and again that private schools not only get as much money as state schools from the government, they get more in many cases, up to 130% in some cases, more money than the state schools next door. And if you don't believe me, just, just log on to my school, find two primary schools next to each other, one Catholic and one state schools, and just type in how much money the government gives each. You will find they'll be the same, or the private school will get more. And then if you're really smart, you can log on to my school and work out the socioeconomic status components of those schools and you realise that the poor kids all go to the state school and the slightly richer kids all go to the Catholic school and the Catholic school gets more money to educate the less difficult children. So all, all of these ideas that have been used and put forcefully in the political and social arena to support the idea of public funding of private schools have gone. And in the latest Gonski 2.0 debate, the thing that I have found the most instructive and the most fascinating is the only argument that was put forward by the Catholic Education Office in Victoria, in Western Australia, in South Australia and New South Wales was this. And it wasn't even an idea. It was a political threat. Simple, barefaced, absolutely upfront political threat. If you do this, if you take our overfunding away, then we will make sure that all the Catholics will not vote for you. They'll vote for somebody else. And there were even some, some, some Liberal Party politicians, one indeed from Western Australia, who said, we can't not give the Catholic school all the money they want. And when asked why, he said, just because. Just because. There were, there were no reasons, there were no ideas, there was no rhetoric, there was no questions of values or anything like that. It was just really, really simple. Oh, Robert, give them all they want and take them over. <laughs> it's got to that point now. And I think that what has what has happened is that Birmingham has pulled the bluff, not only of the Catholic Church but of Mr Abbott and Mr Andrews, and in other words, the old DLP. The old DLP is in trouble, and all they all they can think about doing is going over to Corey Bernardi. So, um, yeah. I and, hope um, the Labor Party are watching and are a bit sensible about this. Well, the Labor Party has been very interesting in this debate 
Um, very, very disappointing and very, very interesting. And with the latest census results that came out, and I'm not sure if many of our listeners are aware, but the largest single group of people when it comes to religion in Australia today are people who express they have no religion. They have no religion. That is, in fact, the largest single group in 2016. It's overtaken um, the Catholic Church as the largest single group, and, and certainly all the others. If you put all of the religious groups together, like all of them, and you add them all up, there are more religious people in Australia than there are not religious people. But um, if you're going to talk about questions about the one true God um, amongst all those religious people, you're going to have more arguments <laughs> amongst the religious and obviously um, than those people with no religion. But the single largest voting block, the single largest collection of ideas when it comes to the funding of various uh, religions and their schools, in Australia now, if you're a politician, take note, are people who have no religion. Very, very interesting thing in the media were the interviews with children who'd gone to Catholic schools and who had in fact put themselves into the no religion box. So these schools that we've been pouring billions of dollars into have failed on the first, on the first reason for having them in the first place. Now, here on the dogs, we explain what, what in fact Gonski 2.0 is because it's really difficult to get a handle on this. It's such an opaque question. Like if you ask, ask the person in the street, they go, oh, it's um, about taking money away from private schools uh, or something um, kind of about fairness. But because the whole thing has been so opaque, um, it's very, very difficult to get a handle on it. Now, last week we described in detail the Australian Education Union's perspective on what indeed Gonski 2.0 is. And I think it's worth just outlining that again before we continue with the program. But I just really did want to point out, dear, you know, dearest listeners, and we know you're out there, and thanks very much for your contributions for the Radiothon. We really appreciate not just supporting us here at the Dogs, but also 3CR, 855, on the AM dial and podcast. Without your contributions, um, you wouldn't be listening to my dulcet tones or Jean's or Dale's, or in fact anything on 3CR. We just wouldn't be here. And the only reason we are, of course, is... Thanks to you. But before we go on to describe in detail what Gonski 2.0 is, or perhaps even just in passing, I did think it was important to highlight that in 2017, the rhetoric for supporting private schools is completely absent. There is no rhetoric left. There is no reason to support private schools. There is no reason to support private schools put forward by the private schools themselves. It's not empty. The only thing that's left is political threats. The only thing that's left is the withdrawal of political support that the churches feel that they have. And I suggest to you that if you're a politician, and I'll be talking to the Labor Party over the next week or two, and if you're listening and in the Labor Party, uh, the Brighton branch are having a, a, little, little, a little listen to, to the dogs on, on Monday evening. Um, if you are a member of a political party, think very carefully about the political threats that have been congealed around the idea of, of Cardinal George Pell saying that all Catholic schools are mission fields and that all Catholic schools are not public schools. They have no public good at all. They are for the promulgation and support of the Catholic Church. When you have people like Cardinal Pell saying that's what Catholic schools are for, and yes, he has said that on multiple occasions, um, as a politician... That's not the side you want to be on. That's not the side that's going to win this. Because all you need is just a little bit more information going out into the general public and people say, oh, I'm not supporting them. 
Oh, no, no, no. I'm a good Catholic, and because I'm a good Catholic, I'm not sending my child to a Catholic school. I'm not. I mean, it's, it's not quite there yet. But if you lose the ideas, and, and as Jim will tell you, ideas are powerful things in history. And perhaps we are now at a turning point. And in the end, what defines corruption? What defines corruption is the distribution of resources the distribution of resources that are distributed in the way they are for no other reason than someone will say, a phrase like this, they'll say, that's just the way we do things around here. Why did you give that policeman $2,000? Oh, that's just the way we do things around here. That's how you describe corruption. Why did you give all those private schools all that money for all those years? And the answer can only be, well, that's just the way we do things around here. And if that's the that's the reason, that's the idea behind why private schools exist in Australia to the level that they do, which, by the way, is almost unique on this ball we call the Earth. It's almost unique on the planet the way we do things in Australia. No other country in the world gives money to, to or no other developed or civilised country in the world gives all this money to separate out their children based upon their colour, colour creed, religion and, and skin colour and, and sexuality. Don't worry, Trump's America's working on it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure they'll get there, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about us just for now. Um, when it comes to questions like this, if that's the only reason, uh, then they have indeed lost the argument. And the consequences of that, I think, will be borne out in the years to come. So we keep fighting here on the dogs, in a certain sense. Um, if you win the battle of ideas, then then the spoils shall follow. But you've been listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast over the WWWs. It's been great to have you, company. But we'll be back after um, a little bit of music. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Just a little, uh, a little tidbit from America, from Diane Ravitch, on her blog. This is both sad and funny. The Charter High School for Law and Social Justice fired 11 of its 15 teachers because they wanted to join the teachers' union. Doesn't social justice, I mean, the Charter High School for Law and Social Justice, doesn't social justice mean that you listen to the voices of those who feel in need of protection and let them make their own decisions? Haven't unions been part of the movement for social justice since the late 19th century? Don't the powerful seek to crush collective bargaining so that each worker is on his or her own? The abrupt 
dismissals forced the United Federation of Teachers, which represents educators at the Charter High School for Law and Social Justice in the Bronx, to file a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. By discharging approximately 73% of the 15 bargaining unit members, they sent a clear message. Support the UFT and you will be fired, the complaint said. The um, Charter High School for Law and Social Justice's actions demonstrate a clear attempt to derail the United Federation of Teachers' status and support and will irreparably chill bargaining unit members' rights, the union said. The dismissals came after a year of attempts from the Charter School teachers to negotiate a contract with the school, which was approved as a charter school in 2013 and opened its doors in 2015. So um, there were quite a few rather interesting uh, comments there. Uh, One of them was that firing teachers is the innovation of corporate charters. Innovation nowadays means lost jobs and low wages. Innovators nowadays are ruthless and cruel. Innovation nowadays is inhumane. The uh, NLRB will make this charter pay, and that will be justice. So they were concerned too that the NLRB is now in Republican control two to one. By next year sometime, the only member of the NLRB who's pro-Labor chairman, Mark Pearce, will see his term expire. Then the board will be three-naught right-wing Republican. Elections do have consequences. So um, I hope that Lee Rhiannon and the New South Wales Teachers Federation and all of the uh, public school people behind her up in New South Wales send a very strong message to uh, the Greens in Canberra that perhaps if they want to keep people voting for them, they should think about the people they actually represent, Mm. not just the whiff of power in their nostrils. Now, I have a very sad duty to perform. Bernie Shepherd, who did a lot of work for the Save Our Schools program, uh, particularly looking at the My School website, has died. And Chris Bonner has um, written his eulogy. Here it is. Every profession has them, those people with an extraordinary range of interests and talents who change the lives of others and sometimes the profession itself. Bernie Shepherd, who has just lost his battle against cancer, was one of those. He was a science teacher with great interest and ability in English and the arts, a school principal who established a different type of school, a consultant who carried a new method of assessing students across New South Wales and a retiree who pioneered analysis of our school system by tapping into the data behind the My School website. To readers of Pearls and Irritations, Bernie Shepherd's name is best known for their work on the analysis of My School and the published findings. Over the last two years, Bernie Shepherd and Chris Bonner 
were fortunate to join with the Centre for Policy Development in the publication of Uneven Playing Field in 2016 and Losing the Game, and this latter was released just last week, just two days before Bernie died. He kept contributing to losing the game until his final few weeks, always making sure that it met high standards. His command of the English language and his endless pursuit of accuracy in analysis guaranteed accuracy in reporting what they found. On only one occasion did they have to amend a published article, and it certainly wasn't Bernie's mistake. Bernie was quite quite undemonstrative person, which meant that when something really raised his eyebrows, you knew that it was significant. After the first couple of years, um, Chris Bonner suggested that the data might show what changes were occurring over time in our framework of schools. But Bernie insisted that they wait two more years. Only politicians and the tabloids get excited by changes in just one or two years. <laughs> then in 2014, his analysis showed that in the years following our non-implementation of the Gonski recommendations, equity and achievement in our schools was worsening, and the rest is recent history. Bernie's career initially followed a common trajectory for many teachers, classroom teacher at Liverpool Boys High School, head teacher at Dremoyne Boys High, then deputy principal at Seven Hills High. He then became the foundation principal of the newly created St Mary's Senior High School, the first state senior high school in New South Wales. In between those appointments, he was a curriculum consultant and also led syllabus development in science. He became a foundation member of the New South Wales Board of Studies and for years was an indispensable part of curriculum, assessment, scaling and standard setting in New South Wales. He served on the executive of the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council and he was an elder elder statesman among his colleagues long before he became elder. He would do all this, occasionally revealing, again in that understated way, his wide range of other talents and interests, whether it be photography or the magic of the theatre. Bernie was truly a Renaissance man in the digital age. Technology and computers were among his tools. He could make a spreadsheet sing. Bernie Shepherd made a difference at all levels from individual students up to the movers and shakers or maybe he saw the priority from individual students down to the movers and shakers. He didn't seek the limelight but it sought him out. He was made a member of the Order of Australia and a fellow of the Australian College of Educators as well as of the Centre for Policy Development. He seemed to gather life memberships, including from the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council, the New South Wales Parents and Citizens Federation and the Australian Education Union. Given the politics of education, this was a remarkable recognition from such diverse organisations. We've all seen remarkable people in our lives. Bernie Shepherd's name is up there in lights. I'm proud to have been part to sh- able to share parts of his life with so many others. And a gathering to celebrate Bernie's life is going to be held in the second half of July. And that will be, of course, in Sydney. And um, farewell, Bernie. We at the dogs 
are very grateful for all the work that Bernie and Chris Bonner and Trevor Cobalt have done on the My School website and on our other websites as well to bring us hard facts. And I know that there's a lot of journalists around Australia who are very grateful to Bernie also because they draw on the Save Our Schools facts and figures for so many of the very useful articles that they have been producing in the last few years. The battle for public education proceeds on many fronts. One of those fronts is here on 3CR. Another one, of course, is in the schools themselves with the teachers. Another one is in the teachers' unions that have to fight for the rights of our teachers and to give them reasonable, if not good, conditions to work in. And, of course, the principals are a key factor in it as well, as well as the bureaucrats that we hear so little of. Those, of course, in Treasury Place and in the centres who are genuinely dedicated to public education to the point that they even send their children to the nearest state school. But our time has gone. And we'll just tell you, if you want to find out more about us, to go to www.adogs.info. But from Dale and Robert and I, it is bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joey last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die Says Joe, I didn't die And standing there as big as life And smiling with his eyes Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find I, but 
Joe.